welcome everyone to the fifth episode of the Greater European Talks. This week we will be discussing Eurasia, which for us is quite a large definition of the contact between Europe and Asia, a bit large in the average definition of Eurasia. But with me, we have two fantastic people. We have Valentina, if you want to say hello. Hi. Coming all the way from Munich, Germany, and Nikhil. Coming all the way from Kathmandu, Nepal. So we're going to be talking about a bit more of the news articles that have come recently. Valentina is going to be introducing a little bit about the recent disappearance and reappearance of Kim Jong-un and what that means for both North Korea and the discussions around North Korea. Nikki will be talking a little bit about Islamophobia in Asia and how kind of the diplomatic relations between China and the EU in that way. And I'll be finally rounding off with a discussion on China's actions in the South China Sea, which have become a bit more ramped up recently. However, without further ado, first I'll hand over to Valentina, if you want to introduce a little bit about what happened with Kim Jong-un. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for having me. So uh, today I wanted to talk about, like you already said, the um, disappearance and reappearance of the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, which has led to um, a lot of a lot of um, reports within the media speculating what could have happened and what will happen if um, yeah if he he's not there and this could mean that he's maybe dead or just yeah very very sick. So I thought this was very interesting because it has not been the first time that um, Kim Jong Un has disappeared from the scene. Um, also, we know that not many information are leaking the are leaking North uh, North Korea. The most like the the most reliable source about information from the country is South Korea. But in this very specific case, it was interesting. Like his disappearance was very interesting because he was also missing at the most important event in North Korea, which is the birthday of the founder of the nation. Uh, which was also Kim Jong-un's grandfather. And this event is like the, the birthday celebration is on the 15th of April. And I think his last appearance was on the 11th of April. Um, and so he was he was absent for, for quite a while, for almost three weeks. And then he reappeared um, at the celebration at the opening event of, um, of a, I think, a fertilizer company. And while he was while he was absent, there were many many speculations about his health issues, uh, since he's not um, having a very healthy lifestyle. And also due to the coronavirus, we don't have many information about North Korea, so that was also a question. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Why do you think U.S. media in particular um, and some European media? jump to conclusions quite so quickly about, like, well, he must be dead, or I think uh, the one of the major ideas was he's been reduced to, like, a vegetative state from a bad surgery. Uh, I think the, the most striking event was the fact that he was not present at the celebration on the 15th, mm -hmm. which is, is a major event, and it's uh, he has to be there, and there were already some some information about his health um, his health state because he seems to be 
He seems to have had already uh, a problem with his ankle in 2014, so there were speculations about this, if he had hurt himself. And this was just one of the smallest of the smallest speculations. People were also speculating that he had a health surgery, uh, that he had a heart mm -hmm. surgery in uh, China, mm -hmm. and that this surgery maybe went wrong, and possibly he died. And also, due to, also some other speculations said that he was, um, yeah, locking himself into home uh, due to the virus, which um, but North Korea is denying right now that there are any cases of coronavirus yeah. in the country. So yeah, that that's not that could also be one of the reasons. I think it's it's due to the to the big event that he was missing at, and also due to the pandemic we're actually in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And do you think like the sort of overactivity, you know, there's not much news happening, they might as well kind of focus on this was a, a, a factor of it? Or is it quite a common occurrence, uh, these sort of speculations over North Korea? What, what do you mean exactly? Um, like you, you said, mentioned this isn't the first time people have speculated over his health. Um, he had uh, the issue with his foot. He also, uh, I believe, may have had a stroke a few years ago as well. Um, do you believe that's been exacerbated now by kind of the situation where there's not a huge amount of media there and they've been focusing on it? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think right now there's not much going on. And so the focus is really on, on things that are maybe, that maybe would have, would have went unnoticed in, in another situation. But due to, due to the pandemic there, I think media is focusing a lot on this issue. And what I, what I found very, very interesting mm -hmm. is that there were immediately speculations about the succession. Uh, what would happen if he was dead? Yeah. Like people were not even concerned about his health, like him being um, sick simply, but they were really speculating about, about him being dead. And he's 36. Mm -hmm. He is supposed to be, he's supposed to be 36. 36. There are no, um, there are no information oh, wow. about his actual age. But uh, he's only 36, and it's true that he has a very unhealthy lifestyle, but it's not very probable that he's dead. But still, there were so many speculations around, speculating who would take up his his place afterwards. And I think the two people who were, like, mostly, yeah, that, that they were probably taking over were his sister and um, one of his yeah. one of the most important politicians in North Korea, Chu Ryong-hei. I hope I said his name just a little bit right. Um, he's the president of the Presidium of the Supreme People's Assembly. Like He's one of the major states people in North Korea. And this, is so, this was so surprising because, I mean, I, f I think it would leave a big hole, a big vacuum in like in the political sphere if he would die because North Korea is a country that is absolutely yeah you can you cannot how how can i say you you don't know what to expect from them and there there could there could have come a big threat from mm -hmm. them and not knowing what will happen next is even a bigger even a bigger threat and i feel like the countries like america china or mm -hmm. japan are not prepared for 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 this situation, not knowing what will happen next. Mm. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And so, on his reappearance, obviously a lot of people news said, okay, well, he must not be dead. But Donald Trump, for example, tweeted out, uh, I think it's like, it's great to see my friend again, or, you know, it's good to see that he's still around. 
do you think that Donald Trump still believes that he has a, a way forward with North Korea? That, you know, he's glad that, you know, better the devil you know rather than the one you don't? Yes, I think he was one of the one of the one of the only of one of the few things that I was respecting about Donald Trump is that he was really trying to make a move towards uh, North Korea in order to to get some diplomatic relationships with the country. And so I think that he put a lot of effort and work into this. And of course, I can understand if he's if he's happy or if he's relieved to know that uh, Kim Jong-un as well. Even though I know that in another uh, interview, he was asked uh, about about Kim Jong-un and he said that he doesn't want to reply at this moment. So there are also speculations about um, this uh, reappearance being fake. Um, there's also speculations about the footage being old, but in the footage you can also see people wearing masks. So this is probably due to the corona crisis. And so on the one hand, you see you see the people who are wearing masks, but on the other hand, there are still voices who claim that the video could not be uh, a recent footage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I do remember seeing as well in that footage um, his sister, who has only kind of reappeared on those days quite recently. So it would be unlikely to be an old one. But still, I think that's definitely a possibility. If it was fake footage, why do you think they're making it longer so let's let's say it is faked and he is still in a, in a bad state um upon the death of his father people were immediately brought to the streets and immediately there was a ceremony to replace because of course there can be no empty leadership why would they fake it and what what does that mean really for for north korea's future if it was fake i think they would do it to to gain time because when uh, Kim Jong Un's father died, Kim Jong Un was already old enough to take over the to take over leadership, to take over the office. But right now, the, um, it is supposed that uh, Kim Jong Un has three children, but all of these children are pretty young. Apparently, his oldest child is more or less ten years old. So this means that he's way too young to to follow follow the the road that his father has taken, like to te- to lead the country. And I think that if Kim Jong-un was really either dead or in severe health conditions, then um, they would try to to hide this information a little bit longer from the public just to have uh, a plan B, let's say, because it's also a pretty young nation. I think it's, it's yeah, North Korea's only, as we know it now, is only 70, 75 years old. So this has never happened before for them. And I think that, they still have to figure out how to do it. As far as I know, North Korea is still a very, um, let's say, traditional, maybe patriarchal country. And um, I think it's not obvious for them that a woman, Kim Jong-un's sister, takes over the lead. So mm-hmm. I think they they will have to figure out if it's her taking over the responsibility uh, until the son of Kim Jong-un has, is old enough to do it himself or if it's uh, if it's Chu Yonghei, so um, I think that's what that's why they're doing is this is why it's so it's so different, and I think they don't want to create a general panic because probably also the population of North Korea would feel very uncomfortable mm-hmm. not knowing what what will happen next because normally mm-hmm. they do. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. And um, I guess last question I have for this, and I'll open it up to Nikita if you have anything else to add. Um, so the most, the, the quickest and uh, most conclusive answer that he wasn't at was from South Korea. Now, of course, recently there are elections in South Korea. Um, the ruling party won quite a large um, victory in that, and they've been advocating for obviously closer relations with North Korea. Um, why do you think they were so quick to come out and defend uh, Kim Jong-un's possible death? You know, literally, I believe within the first sort of articles mentioned, they immediately had a letter saying, don't worry, we we'll talked to North Korea. Why do you think they're defending them so much um, rather than sort of letting things play their course? I think the situation is very... We have to be cautious in this situation. We ha don't have to call out information that we don't have. So telling speculating about the death of of a leader of a dictator of such such a country would lead to would could lead to to a diplomatic crisis so since south korea is the the closest like the, the has the closest relationships to north korea and has also access to information that maybe the rest of the world doesn't have they ha also have the responsibility to keep yeah to how, how do you say like to don't don't even put yeah, I don't know gasoline into the fire don't to don't exaggerate like give give people even more ground for speculations I think they are in in charge to to lower a little bit like yeah not to don't risk that the situation escalates mm -hmm. very much Okay, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yes, he has a, apparently he has a son that is around 10 years old. But there's no. It, it, has there for now been any establishment of a formal successor? No, there is no official um, official sequence. What uh, there is no plan B. Let's say they only have plan A that the son succeeds after his father. This is how it has been for the last seventy years, and so it's not official that his sister will take over office. Um, what is probably going to happen is that his sister, in cooperation with the with the North Korean minister with Cho Ryang Hae, will together lead the country until the son of Kim Jong Un is old enough to take over office. But his his sister is probably not going to do this alone because it's simply not how how things have been going in North Korea. She's she's a woman and like I said, they are still very patriarchal. So she would just take the lead as long as the, the male heir is old enough to do so. Perfect. Okay. Well thank you very much, Valentina. Um very interesting debate. I think everyone's North Korea is a very uh, anomalous country when it comes to international systems. It was very interesting to see what's going on there. Uh, next uh Nikhil if you want to introduce a little bit about your topic um, and then we'll get discussing about it. 
Hello everyone, my name is Nikhil Dangul and regarding the discussion of Eurasia, I'll be today focusing on, for in, at the first stage I'll be focusing on Islamophobia, especially in the Southeast Asia which has its ripple effect up to the Middle East. And in the second half I'll be discussing more about the diplomatic relation between China and East Europe. So. Uh, at first, Islamophobia. So Islamophobia is a fear, hatred or prejudice against the Islamic religion or Muslim, generally when they are seen as a geopolitical force or as a source of terrorism. So it has its roots in a 9-11 attack from the rise of Islamic State of Iraq and Levant and also the many terrorist attacks in Europe. So it has been a growing a kind of xenophobic or racism tendency uh, of Islamophobia, especially in the Southeast Asia, especially India. So the special, uh, an interesting form of uh, this kind is is that this Islamophobia is connected with the nationalism. Uh, the nationalism in the sense that the one who is Islamophobic is assumed to be, is they themselves assumed to be more nationalistic uh, in India. So there was a, uh, uh, there, there was an incident that there was a hate, communal hate, hate speech in India and the ripple effect has gone to the uh, Middle East, for example, the Omani Prince's Twitter, Twitter account. So the Twitter account was later uh, said to be supposed to be fake, but uh, the Omani princess Saida Man bin Al Faladi said, mm -hmm. which referred Indian treatment of the Muslim as persecution. So it has been uh, iterated that drastic steps would be taken against the Indian population in Oman if the situation is continued. Though this news is a fake one, but uh, it. it kind of show the portrait, the kind of treatment, a kind of tendency that has been growing in this part of the world and affecting the Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. no, very interesting. So what kind of current news article do you think has kind of brought this to the forefront? Because obviously there's been discussions over the, the CAA, the Citizenship Amendment Act in India, which has brought kind of Islamophobia to the forefront. But what, what kind of news event, what, are, what do you want to bring that happened recently that kind of brought this to the forefront? So uh, there's a uh, news by Indian media that uh, that the, the Islams are spread, spreading as a transit country in Nepal. So uh, by mentioning a kind of people's name, a direct, they said that there is a, a people who are spreading from Nepal to India, kind of, so kind of... Uh, uh, Muslim and it is also uh, almost a fact that there are there are Muslims who are corona uh, corona uh, affected, but a kind of focusing on that. Yeah, every every religion can have people who can track corona. It doesn't matter what religious you are. Yeah, so kind of they are focusing this fact rather than focusing everyone has affected. So focusing on one fact and believing one fact, some a kind of new conspiracy or what do you say? A phobic, Islamophobic tendency has been growing in the media as well. So, 
So secondly, I'll be focusing on mostly of uh, uh, Chinese diplomacy was mostly the West Eastern countries, Eastern Western countries, East Western countries, East European, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. say East yeah. European, mostly the Serbia. The Serbia's president, mm-hmm. Vucic, uh, if I may pronounce it well. So Vucic has mentioned uh, kindly of a term of brother or only friend, only country that could help. This is a result of a kind of uh, a long whole century China has been investing that and the, the China card that had been served playing is aiding to the max diplomacy of uh, China. So so it is it has come from not only from this incident but it has come from the past of the Kosovo voting that China played uh, in favor of Serbia as well as during the uh, revival of the century old steel manufacturing industry. So, Sorbe has been uh, uh, putting a kind of when EU halted uh, some medical protective equipment to its non EU members, which Sorbe has been uh, opting for membership of EU since 2009. So, this kind of hatred feeling EU a little bit away from the EU and China has uh, as a fruitful ground to have a very good opportunity to kind of max diplomacy with the Eastern countries at the EU's strategic backyards. So China has been uh, very uh, perfectly using this time of time frame to have in uh, extending its relation to the strategic backyards of European Union and has been uh, mostly denoting as then indicating that it is a kind of next superpower. So the immediate uh, immediate effects could be seen in a kind of social, political, economic effects could be seen in the next two or three years, but a kind of indirect effects, indirect ramification can concourse to a kind of different mm-hmm. world order, which is kind of prevailing, which is mostly uh, popularized in this time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think China's action set in the Balkans is, is quite interesting. A lot of Europeans see it as almost like a threat. Um, how long has this been going on and do you think it's going to increase over time or is this just something China's doing now in the circumstances? Oh, so it's been uh, it's been a, a little while that China has been facing a soft diplomacy, a kind of uh, term that we uh, see in the media as like deep trap diplomacy, kind of Marx diplomacy, everything. It has been a century. It's been a while. The, through if you see the sarks, China has been an observer status in two thousand five. So 2005 and ASEAN, there is a, a regional comprehensive economic partnership, which is commonly known as RCEP, with with the ten ASEAN nations and other five, including China. And also there is a many a diplomacy that has been in Africa. So there have been many investment from China. It's not only been uh, this time, but there has been a series of events that has been gaining diplomacy by China. Mm-hmm. I see, yeah, they've been expanding diplomacy everywhere. It just happens in Europe, they've been doing that. Yeah. And do you think, if, in terms of Eastern Europe and Europe, Serbia is kind of uh, the main country China's been focusing on? So, Why do you think that is? So, 
there are many countries, but, uh, but the story where the, the two-way unilateral and other bilateral kind of two-way interaction is mostly seen in Serbia. Like, for example, the Vus, uh, the president, Serbian president addressed his uh, Xi Jinping as a brotherly friend, brother and a good friend, and the only country that can help us during the crisis. A kind of these words kind of fulfilling some kind of a more strong steel iron friendship between them. Okay, very interesting. Uh, anything you want to add, Valentina? No, thank you. So, what I want to introduce and talk about uh, today is about sort of China's actions in the South China Sea. As you know, the South China Sea, um, comprising some of the richest fishing areas um, and almost a third of entire global maritime trade, passes through the South China Sea. Um, is a very important location for all the countries involved. Um, there are differing claims from China, um, and by that I mean both the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China. Both of them claim the Nine Dash Line, which pretty encompasses the whole of the South China Sea. Um, the Philippines, uh, Brunei, Dar es Salaam, uh, Malaysia, even Indonesia has a small uh, clash with China's claims. Uh, Vietnam. Island. There are lots of competing claims there. But recently, what triggered kind of a further action is the sinking of a Vietnamese fishing boat um, in early April. Uh, this was seen as quite an aggressive move by China, who so far have harried boats and maybe tried to cut them off, but never gone so far as actually sinking ships. Um, it wasn't like a, a military vessel, which is a fishing vessel, but still, uh, Vietnam has now lodged a, a bilateral complaint over China's actions. Um, I believe the Philippines has already done this, and other countries are concerned with it as well. Um, but recently, they have been also, um, they re-established new uh, islands and new administration over some of the islands they're building in the middle. Um, and they're definitely pushing up their actions to constrain U.S. freedom of navigation, uh, which is where the U.S. just sends a boat right through Chinese claimed territory um, to show that it is still free and still allowed. And I think this is a lot of um, insinuations for the future of not only China's actions, but also I mean, the way people act with China. China hasn't won any friends from this. If anything, it's its chances to gain a foothold diplomatically in Vietnam and the Philippines have been sacrificed from their very rough actions against these countries territorially. Um, and I think that China personally doesn't care too much. Its number one aim is to get the US out of this first ring in the South China Sea. Um, because in case of a military intervention or in case of military issues, this first ring will be China's probably most important um, I mean, maritime area. So I believe it's it's China kind of testing its grounds for hard power, which of course Sony become used to recently. It now does have by number the largest navy in the world, uh, both blue water and white water by the coast. Quality wise, maybe not. The US still far surpasses them. And let's remember, when it comes to maritime, one of the main issues is logistics. You know, how do you get a ship? across the world 
and most of that is working with partners. And whilst China does claim ports in, for example, Sri Lanka or Pakistan, it doesn't have the global network that the US does yet. Um, but I think it's very interesting to see, especially amongst these crises, um, how China's acting, sort of brand new actions from them, and how I think we can definitely see a turning point in the past months um, with China's actions in this. I think, uh, yeah, mid-April was when the first kind of Xi Jinping visiting some of the Navy um, who were patrolling these areas. And so a lot of people claim an ascending or a rising China. And I think this is definitely where a lot of future reports or future analysis will focus on saying, well, China's now taken not the offensive, that's a bit strong, but they've taken the initiative really to move further. Uh, any comments from either of you two or questions, maybe? What did you say? No one owns owns the sea territory officially? Correct, yes. The, the, they, they lost a case against the Philippines under the UN uh, Laws of the Sea, UN Clause, which they are assigned to. Um, this was, I believe, in... Um, oh, it was a long-running one. Uh, I'll have to check exactly when. I think it's 2011? Uh, no, 2013. Um, and then in 2016, the court ruled in favour of the Philippines. However, um, China ignored this completely. They just said, we don't. I believe they physically didn't turn up to the final reading, which a lot of states do, actually, when they fail, because sadly it's very difficult to enforce that. Um, but... What's interesting is, obviously, China claims this majoritively based on historical ties. That's what they say. Historically, we have fished here. Historically, we have used this area. They've never actually politically owned the lands there, hence why they're doing the island building, which is started in 2013. Um, and so that's probably the most, the bit that kind of clashes with international law. And it's also quite a key point about why China um, kind of refuses to engage that much with international law as such. International organizations, maybe, you say that diplomatically they do, but in terms of the, uh, the ILC or um, the uh, ICJ, they haven't been nearly as active kind of in this. Um, and for what it's worth, Taiwan also rejected it, um, although, of course, they're not in the UN system. Um, it's still interesting to see that they're not the only ones to be sort of fighting for this nine dash line. Taiwan still holds areas over it. Um, and closer to the, the mainland, they do actually hold a couple of the smaller islands. Under the UN Law of the Sea, um, UN Clause, there is there are rules and provisions over economic exclusive zones. Now, these extend, I believe, at a, a basis of a, several miles outside. Um, and how many? 300? Up to 200. Exactly, yeah, from the baseline. Um, and already this causes clashes. You know, already, for example, Brunei clashes over with Malaysia. Um, Philippines clashes with Malaysia as well. And there are a couple competing in. But for the vast majority of what we call the South China Sea, where we have what are called the Spratly and the Parcel Islands, there is no specific overlap with economic exclusive zones. Therefore, it's, it's, it's open for anyone to really fish. There are two ways you can change exclusive economic zones. One is, of course, treaty. 
uh, bilateral treaty. This happens quite a lot. Uh, I believe Peru and Chile had a very controversial one they resolved recently. Um, and the other way is to prove that you have a shelf, um, so pretty much an underwater bit connected to your land that actually extends. Uh, this is, for example, what Russia is trying to do with the uh, Arctic. They're trying to claim they have a continental shelf that connects further. However, no such shelf exists there. And so what they're trying to do to really establish their sovereignty is literally building new islands and claiming they are Chinese land. Um, they're not the only ones to do this. Um, I believe the Philippines have built a few themselves. But, of course, scale-wise, Chinese have vastly outnumbered, outmaneuvered almost everyone in the area, really, to try and build up their their sovereign zones. Um, and, I mean, this is compounded, as I said, by the fact that a huge quantity of boats pass through this area and the possibility of China stopping or harassing or causing issues for them worries many people, um, although obviously not the Chinese. Um, and I think it's it's very interesting how this goes, really. The UN Laws of the Sea is probably one of the more impactful UN sort of conventions that passed, um, but definitely one that hasn't been tested to its extent. You've had issues with, you know, sort of Russia's claims in some of the, I think, the sea of, or oh, I don't know, the sea up near Japan where they had to resolve issues. Um, but something of this magnitude hasn't properly sort of gone through the system yet. And um, even organizations like ASEAN, who have sort of held brief meetings on it, um, most notably recently Mike Pompeo, he joined a call with ASEAN to reaffirm China's aggression and say that we should stop this um, but they take it's not kind of it's not the level of integration we have in Europe it's definitely a lot more sort of um, intra-governmental rather than supranational so they might issue sort of um, beliefs in how to work forwards but for example if we talk about the ASEAN uh, plus three which includes China um, they've had no sort of concrete views on it there has been work on a kind of South China Sea treaty, um, but fundamentally that started back in 2011 and sort of the, the, the mid, the early 2010s, and that was before China, as we know, became such a sort of a powerhouse. Uh, it weathered the 2008-2007 crisis a lot better, and that I think gave it a lot more confidence that it can do this alone and it can succeed. It views multilateralism definitely as more of a, yeah, less successful than unilateralism in this case. I think the US is in a very negative position in this. The only reason they've managed to maintain their freedom of navigation routes and their actions there is because of its allies around, around it, really. Um, Philippines, for example, uh, the very first treaty between the US and Asia in terms of defense was with the Philippines, of course, former colony of the US. But they haven't focused almost as much or at all, really, on diplomacy in Asia other than select issues. In fact, if anything, they have made more arguments with Japan and South Korea, their main allies in the area, over it. And this has weakened their hand, for sure. And China's definitely been trying to outmaneuver them diplomatically, in this case as well. For example, in the Philippines with Duarte, they've been trying to definitely push a lot further. To what extent has been successful? 
again, it's questionable. I don't. I think it's too early to say. They have also, you know, angered the Philippines at the same time by these claims. But I think, yeah, the U.S. definitely has to reevaluate the position there. I go back to Obama's pivot to Asia, or at that point, I think it was Hillary Clinton's, when she was Secretary of State. That was kind of an attempt to refocus those alliances in Asia. Again, it to some extent it worked, but the war on, I mean, the wars in across the Middle East really kind of refocused that. Obama's push back into Afghanistan kind of derailed a lot of those diplomatic efforts into Asia. I think what's going to be most interesting when it comes to anyone there is whether countries like Australia or Indonesia get further involved, because those are regional powers which so far stay out of direct line of clashing with China. But Australia, especially under Scott Morrison, and Indonesia really as well, have become more aware that their power rests very much depending on how China feels, and they want to change this dynamic. And so I think, and Australia as well, has one of the largest navies in Asia outside of this, one of the largest militaries. And so I think we might find that the US might delegate kind of more of these responsibilities to, to Australia or even boost up partnerships with, let's say, Japan. And they can try and sort of deal with it themselves because the US fundamentally has been going through yeah, a rough time. And let's not forget, one of the reasons the Chinese are so active right now is that one of the main aircraft carriers in the US is out of action due to COVID-19. They contracted huge cases and it's now moored off the coast, uh, recovering from this. Um, and so this was kind of one of the main ships that was patrolling the area, doing these freedom of navigation routes. And so China, to be honest, sees this is the perfect opportunity. And territory gains... This territory is going to be very difficult to, to win back later. Great. Uh, anything else you guys want to, to bring, either for that topic or anything else? Yeah. I just wanted to know, what is what is the position of Japan in all of this? Because you just mentioned it slightly, and I know they didn't, they're not the biggest military force, but they're economically very important. So I was wondering on which side, so to say, they are. Well, of course, they're they're firmly against China in this, and they've already laid um, uh, they've already laid kind of uh, claims against China with the uh, international court, and they've had bilateral claims against them. Um, under Shinzo Abe, it's different though. So, for one thing, of course, they're far away from the action. None of the South China Sea in, in, uh, affects them as, as it is, and. A lot of Japanese growth now is in tandem with Chinese growth. And this is something that Shinzo Abe cannot ignore. So whereas previously, of course, it grew to the second largest and now third largest country, mostly with U.S. goods, Chinese goods and companies are really what drives a good amount. Not a, not a huge amount, but enough to be worrying, considering the Chinese government's view over it. And... I believe Shinzo Abe doesn't want to anger China if he doesn't have to. So he will, and there are diplomatic spats quite often. But the South China Sea, as long as the maritime trade is continued, and as long as the it doesn't affect them directly, they won't take as solid a position, because that would just be wasting diplomatic power for nothing, really. It's quite a realist perspective, 
Um, but with China, almost everything is very realist. That's how they view it on the world. Um, and in terms of alliances as well, um, the US is definitely pushing on Japan to be more active and more kind of aggressive out there. And they are in the sense of, you know, with their own borders and seas, they're very defensive. Um, these are all the violations that have been uh, claimed over are about its national uh, borders and boundaries that have been violated by the fishing and military boats. Um, but I don't think Japan really wants to get involved in the South China Sea at all. It views it definitely as a Southeast Asian issue. It's not with us. We're going to handle out here. I think Vietnam is probably one of the most interesting countries here because it's definitely an ascending regional power. Huge population, quite good economy, relatively, um, and definitely a lot of prospect. And China's actions could drive Vietnam away from its sphere of influence. Um, and of course, the US has also had a growing interest in Vietnam. Um, and so it's going to be interesting seeing how Hanoi kind of deals with this and whether they're going to balance between the two um, because they're the ones with the most kind of claim against um, China. They're the ones who definitely have the most to lose as well and the most to gain. So it's going to be, yeah, more interesting about them. But Japan, yeah, not as active, doesn't want to anger if it doesn't have to because it's just almost wasting diplomatic power at that point. And with China... Diplomatic power is very linked to economic. If China said, you know, no more trade with Japan, that could happen and devastate the economy, which is already suffering a lot from sort of stagnation. Okay, great. Well, I think we will conclude with that then. So thank you once again to Nikhil and Valentina for joining us. Thanks for having us. My name is Ben Philippe. Thank you all for uh, listening. Uh, please do follow us on all our social media. This podcast is hosted on Anchor, but we also, of course, have lots of posts and writing on our website, on Facebook, Instagram, etc. So, thank you very much. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe, stay, stay healthy, and uh, have a good day. Bye.